Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Calling Tau City, turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message. It was a little harsh, you know. It's still a little hard for me to hear. Please take it slow. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring tales to terrify and far-fetched fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets. Pointing them to the moon. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show number 625. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Big thank you to Jeff who got in touch last week about my little, not trouble with Parasite the film, but he said he, he, can't, he liked it probably a lot more than what I did and just went to the film blind. So everything was, what that kind of unfolded was, you know, appreciated by him. Where I was thinking, because I'd probably listened to the hype, I was expecting more. And I think that's, that's the trouble I've had with Parasite. I think I kind of jumped in there. Thinking it was going to be, you know, amazing. You know that, like I say, I mentioned last week that Mark Mode's watched it four times, and the best thing in ten years. Well, that was, I was thinking, hmm, must be good. But Jeff liked it a little bit more than me. So Jeff, thank you very much, sir. What I am watching, mind you, if most, I don't know if anyone can get it, I wasn't saying most people can get it or not, the BBC, on the BBC, it's an, I think it's Norwegian or Swedish crime thriller called Wisting. Anybody heard of that? Anybody watched that? I'll tell you why it was good. Because it was, again, it was like subtitled, but it was clever in the way they did it because there was a, a serial, I'm not going give, to give it all away, but I'm just going to give it a kind of synopsis. There's a serial killer. And the serial killer is American. So they've got to send over two American FBI agents. One is actually the, the actress Carrie-Anne Moss, who, who's in, in the show from, you know, from the Matrix. Trinity. Well, they come over and once they're in the scenes, everything's in English. But then once they, you know, once they kind of turn the backs or they do, you know, they go out of the room, it goes back to Norwegian, I think it is, or Swedish. Uh, you know what I mean? And it's quite clever that the way it, it, it kind of jumps. And once, you know, once they're talking in a native language, the subtitles come back on, but it doesn't stop and it doesn't stutter. It just it flows for you. You know what I mean? I, I love it. And me and Mrs. S are really enjoying that at the moment. So has anybody seen the Wisting? There you go. So I'll tell you what's coming. To me. I'll tell you what's coming today's show. First up is Colleen Anderson with a story, A Taste of Eden, which was originally appeared, or should I say, has originally appeared in worlds of science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Then we have our very own Amy H. Sturgis. Yeah, we're looking back at genre history. That's all coming in today's show. I do hope you'll stick around and enjoy it. So like I say, the main fiction is A Taste of Eden by Colleen Anderson. This, again, this story appeared in worlds of science fiction, fantasy and horror. 
Colleen Anderson edits and writes fiction and poetry. Her work has appeared in over 250 publications with some recent works in Pollu 10X, OnSpec, Thrilling Words, Really System and Nameless. Her collection, A Body of Work. Is published by Black Schnuck Books. She has edited three anthologies and will be the 2020 Creative Inc. Festival Guest of Honour in Vancouver, where she watches for mould monsters. This story is narrated by Tatiana Gray. Tatiana is a critically acclaimed actress of stage, screen and the audio booth. She has been nominated for dozens of fancy awards but hasn't won a single dang thing. She went to NYU and lives in Brooklyn, New York. And you can find her at tatianagray.com. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present... A Taste of Eden by Colleen Anderson Narrated by Tatiana Gray Wunderbar, said Kaiser Wilhelm II. Simply wonderful, an Eden! Genevieve Dupuis executed a full curtsy, head bowed and eyes downcast, though her cheeks flushed with pleasure. Months of painstaking work had now won her this moment of triumph. She straightened, and lifted her eyes to see the Kaiser, in the uniform of an Ulan regiment, though with a cape carefully draped from one shoulder to cover his withered left arm, wander into the bejeweled grove Genevieve had labored to create in the palace grounds. Leaves of multicolored gems gently shifted and chimed as the breeze filtered through the artificial forest she had fashioned from a range of bright metals, the trunks and branches shimmering with dappled light, while the ground was speckled with flowers of amethyst, garnet, ruby, sapphire, coral, tourmaline, and chalcedony. Magical, the emperor said, and Genevieve took a breath. Now was the moment to ask for the next commission, to turn this singular achievement into a blossoming career. But as she opened her mouth to speak the carefully rehearsed phrases, disaster struck. The disaster came in the form of the most stunningly beautiful woman Genevieve had ever seen. Ebony hair, carmine lips, eyes of an impossible blue, and a face copied from one of Raphael's angels. She appeared from nowhere, insinuating her way through the gaggle of courtiers, and knelt before Wilhelm, "'offering something wrapped in silk. "'Your Majesty, may I present a gift "'to add to your forest?' "'Wilhelm had never liked the unexpected, "'but curiosity won out, "'and he waved away the equerry "'who were rushing to his aid. "'The kneeling woman flipped back the square of silk "'to display a little bird made of brass "'with some sort of gem glinting for the eyes.' A nightingale to sing within your jeweled forest. She touched its throat, and the metal automaton began to sing, its beak clacking mechanically, but the voice? Somehow that of a real bird. The emperor laughed, took the creation from the woman's hands, and walked into the garden where he positioned it on a golden branch of a nutmeg tree. Liquid notes continued to pour from its brass mouth. The courtiers moved forward to coo and fawn over the Kaiser's new delight. 
leaving Genevieve alone on the lawn. Her moment dissipated and gone. She turned and took two steps toward the exit, to find her way blocked by the usurper. The woman smiled a perfect smile. I wanted a word with you. Up close, she was even more stunning. A radiant firebird, compared to Genevieve, for whom mousy, she had always thought was almost too kind a description. Genevieve frowned and crossed her arms across her flat chest, steeling herself not to soften under that warming smile. I wanted to congratulate you on your creation. The forest is remarkable. No thanks to you, Genevieve said. The Kaiser has already forgotten it. The woman's cool fingers grazed her arm, sending a shiver through her. I apologize, but this was the only time I could win His Majesty's notice. She tilted her head and took Genevieve's hand in a grasp whose warmth was startling. Let us start fresh. I am Mita Leopoldine Freien von Bauer, and I would like to work with you. You are a genius. Genevieve kept her lips pressed together, though she did not pull her hand away. Please, Mita began, I do not wish us to be enemies. Come by my chateau this evening, where we can talk. I cannot. The woman's magnetism disturbed Genevieve, summoning up half-formed emotions that were new to her. She stepped around her and moved toward the exit. Then come by tomorrow. I will send a coach around at seven. Genevieve threw up her hands and without turning said, Fine, tomorrow. She left before she started screaming. But when the coach came, she did not answer the door. She was busy making new automata for the Emperor's forest. A week after the unveiling, Genevieve brought the Kaiser a rabbit, sculpted from finely cut strips of silver and tin, with ears that twitched and swiveled. Once wound up, it hopped about, stopping to sniff at the artificial plants as if to eat them. When it lolloped beneath the gemstone leaves, it moved with the grace of an actual animal. Wilhelm laughed and thanked her. But then, Mita von Bauer was suddenly there, presenting the Kaiser with a crude cat of copper and brass. The cartoonish face was missing whiskers, and its roundest shape was barely reminiscent of a feline's graceful body. Two rough pieces of green glass passed for eyes, and the limb's motions were mere jerks. But when it meowed or growled, it sounded exactly like a cat, with a full range of feline utterances. Those who attended Wilhelm in the jeweled garden watched his face carefully, and when he smiled, they clapped. Genevieve was the Empire's most accomplished fashioner of robots and automata, but neither she nor her competitors had ever been able to produce true voices. Now, wearing her shapeless pants and old woolen coat, she watched the flawlessly fashionable other woman bask in the Emperor's regard. Mita approached her and smiled. You never came. Genevieve's gaze floated to her competitor's red lips, and she forced herself to look into the woman's blue eyes. Then she looked away.
I was busy. Her hand gestured toward the rabbit. It seemed silly now. Mita did not take her eyes off Genevieve. Please, come to my chateau. I guarantee to make it up to you. We shouldn't be enemies. How do you capture the sound? Genevieve asked. She ran her hand over Genevieve's shoulder and down her back, raising a shiver. Come for dinner. Let us see if we can work together. Genevieve found it hard to speak. Yes, all right. The elegant aristocrat sat across from her as they sipped a digestif in the sitting room. The flavorful dinner of Cornish hens and fresh fall vegetables had been superb, though Genevieve had nervously drunk more wine than she was used to. At dinner, they had chatted about inconsequential things, the weather, the best places to travel, lightly over politics, but not in any depth. Now Genevieve, emboldened by the spreading warmth of the Armagnac, said, How did you manage to mimic the sound so closely? My best efforts produce only rough approximations. Her host arose from the divan and picked up the cut crystal decanter, and poured more for both of them. She set the vessel back on the small table and sat beside Genevieve, leaned in close, staring into her eyes. Genevieve felt Mita's breath against her lips as she said, We will have plenty of time to talk of work. Now is the time for adventure. Genevieve looked into the little amber pool in her glass, hoping her flush didn't show. Then, warm fingers gently tipped up her chin. The knowing smile on Mita's incarnadine lips captured Genevieve's whole attention. The woman moved in closer, lightly touching Genevieve's own breathless mouth. Mita's lips trailed over Genevieve's neck, and her eyes fluttered closed for a moment. Nothing like this had happened since her school days. She had been working so long, and always alone. Genevieve tried to sort her thoughts, as Mita pressed against her, returning to kiss her lips again. Shivers of pleasure ran through her, and her hesitancy broke. Now Mita was pulling the clothes from her, and Genevieve's hands were equally busy. Mita's mouth and tongue trailed over the flat plains of Genevieve's belly, and dipped in to tenderly burrow between her legs. Genevieve gasped as the warm velvet of Mita's tongue penetrated her, and she pulled forward to trail her fingers over the woman's ivory back, managing to work the rest of her petticoats down. For a moment, she thought, Is this wise? But then Mita's ministrations overwhelmed her. They lay upon the carpet, clothes a chaotic mound as their bodies glowed and sweated in the amber firelight. They writhed and loved and explored until the embers had burned low in the grate. Let's work together, Mita murmured into the curve beneath Genevieve's ear. She shivered, feeling a stir of arousal in the languorous aftermath. All right, she sighed. 
Then Mita sat up and smiled with such triumph that Genevieve suddenly felt the cold that was seeping into the room. She sat up, wiping her hair back from her face. I must go, or I'll not be fit to accomplish much tomorrow. I have a client coming by. Mita rolled onto her belly, chin in her hands, and watched Genevieve carefully. Of course, my dear. I will have a servant bring a carriage so you arrive safely. She rang a bell, then stood naked, wantonly, and ran her fingers over Genevieve's breasts as she dressed. We will see each other soon. She turned and left through a door on the far side of the room. Genevieve watched her leave, then dressed hurriedly before a servant entered. Weeks humped up against each other like eager children waiting for a cookie. And before Genevieve knew it, fall was nearly over. She had spent a great deal of time in the lush environs of Mita's body. Together, they had received commissions from the Kaiser. Or rather, he commanded speaking animals from Mita, who subcontracted the building of a dog, a lamb, a wolf, to Genevieve. While Genevieve worked, Mita watched her closely, asking questions, acquiring skills and abilities that made her a better craftswoman. Yet when it came time to imbue them with sound, Mita took the automata and withdrew to her secret workroom, somewhere in the depths of the city. Are we not partners? Genevieve would ask. But the answer always came from Mita's tongue and fingers, working their insidious magic. Genevieve's desire ran like an opiate, and she fell to the allure as surely as the last leaves dropped from the trees. Genevieve was working on a snake, jabbing it ferociously with a screwdriver. Months had passed, during which Mita had revealed nothing beyond her luscious body. The sun cast long shadows from the autumn sky, and Genevieve looked up. Tossing the screwdriver down, she took off her work apron and pulled on a thick wool coat against the chill. She hailed a hansom cab and arrived at Mita's chateau as the sun was setting. The servant looked surprised, but bowed to her as she stormed in. She found Mita in the drawing room, donning a cape, jewels sparkling in her raven-dark hair. Mita! Mita turned slowly. Ah, darling, I wasn't expecting you. We have to talk. I'm starting to feel like I'm just your assistant. Mita picked up an exquisitely beaded reticule and laid a gloved hand on Genevieve's cheek. She smiled, tilting her head to one side. We will talk, my dear. You know I do love talking to you. But right now I have a meeting. She leaned in, giving a quick kiss to Genevieve's lips. I'll see you tomorrow. But Mita did not come, the next day or for several afterwards. A week later, Genevieve was in the Emperor's forest, summoned by Wilhelm to explain why Mita's nightingale had stopped singing. She made her way among the metal trees and heard the titters and growls and hoots from Mita's magic housed in Genevieve's exquisite casings. She saw the damned snake twining itself around a bronze tree trunk. It hissed at her. 
but the nightingale was silent. Its sheen had dimmed. Voiceless, it no longer imitated life. Instead, it looked more like something reanimated from death, a monster from the grave making a mockery of the living. And now that she moved among the creations, Genevieve saw that Mita's other earliest automata no longer meowed or barked. Genevieve was deep in the grove when Mita also arrived in answer to the Kaiser's summons. She was dressed in peacock green and gold, ever the superb ornament. Genevieve moved back into the shadows as Mita approached the emperor and curtsied elegantly. Your Majesty, I would like to ask for an imperial commission. Wilhelm turned and raised an eyebrow, then stared up into the tree where the nightingale sat lifeless and unmoving. Perhaps, but look, your first creature no longer sinks. Do you think you can make one that last longer? Mita tilted her head, a tiny smile playing over her lush lips. It has to do with the life force of the creation, your majesty. Small creatures, small lives. Now, if we go for a horse or even an elephant... Wilhelm waved away the notion with his good hand and wandered through the forest, squinting up at the jeweled leaves. Too big! Not right for this marvel. It should crown this, not stampede through it. Perhaps a child. Can you do that? Make a child's voice? If so, I will grant you a yearly allowance for five years to work on larger commissions. Perhaps I create a zoo of mechanica. The emperor's back was turned as he spoke. But Genevieve saw Mita's face light up with greed. And some other emotion that was even less pleasant to see. After that day, Genevieve did not tell Mita that she knew of the new assignment, nor did her supposed partner mention it. But clearly, Wilhelm's command to build a child had drawn a line between what had been and what was now. Mita no longer sent a carriage for her, and when Genevieve made her own way to the chateau, Mita's servant would say that his mistress was not at home. But Mita Leopoldine Frein von Bauer was not one to blend in with the common people on the narrow streets of the old city. While Genevieve was the daughter of an engineer and had lived a simple life before her studies. It was not hard for her to observe without being observed, or to ask questions of tradespeople and cab drivers. Soon enough, she had found her lover's workroom housed in an old stone abattoir that was filled with people carting carcasses and slabs of meat during the day, but quiet as death after dark. She watched Mita come and go on several occasions. On the fourth night, having established the woman's routine, Genevieve waited an hour past Mita's departure, then made her way into the building. She lit a small lantern casting its golden eye over the large room, and chunks of red and white marbled meat hanging from the rafters. The place did not smell of rot and looked clean. The meat cutters had washed everything down at the end of their day, and water shone blackly on the floor and wooden tables where butchers cut up flesh and chopped bone. 
She crept between gently swaying sentinels of pork and beef, unnerved by the shadows and oily pools. Genevieve noticed stairs to a floor above. As she moved toward them, the lantern light winked over something on the floor. Bending down, she found the ring for a trap door. This will be the lab, she thought. She pulled, and the wooden square eased up silently. As she descended, the lantern's dim light showed her stacked crates and unrecognizable apparatus. A bluish glow emanated from her far left, and she went toward it. She felt water dripping on her through the floorboards above as she wove between shelving and packed crates, tables littered with cogs and wheels, some with tubing and others with brass or tin limbs. Most were animal forms or unrecognizable, but the refinement increased as she made her way toward the light. She stopped to inspect some of the material on the benches and became aware of a low electrical humming. Genevieve moved toward the sound until, rounding one row of shelves, she came upon giant blue-white glass spirals of light thrumming with contained energy. Tesla coils! She'd used similar devices to animate some of her automatons, but these were massive. The Tesla coils stood like sentries over a table on which lay a human-shaped robot. Tools for welding and tortures were on a nearby bench. Genevieve set the lantern down, no longer needing it in the pulsing white light, and walked between the electrical pillars. Dripping water flashed like lightning as a monstrous shadow capered and danced across the lab. Cautiously, she looked for movement. Why would Mita need so much power for such poorly constructed machines? As she edged past the coils, Genevieve felt a charge ripple through her body. Her hair lifted away from her neck. The air smelled tangy, yet musty, and something else. Musky, elusive, and reminiscent of her childhood. The humanoid shape on the table was crude, blue glass eyes staring, arms stiffly at the side of the comical tubular body more a marionette than a person. It was the size of a twelve-year-old child, but by far Mita's roughest work. Obviously, it was for the assignment the emperor had ordered. But why always the sloppiness in the forms? Genevieve took up the lantern again and looked around the shadowed room. She saw cages on the floor and knelt before one. In each one lay a lifeless form. Dead, dried-out husks, a nightingale, and a peacock, a cat, recently dead of starvation from the looks of it, and a wolf. The latter was not yet dead, but lay on its side, its ribcage barely moving, the gray matted fur showing its emaciated form. Why had Mita starved these creatures? Genevieve's arms prickled with cold. What kind of person would cage an animal and not even feed it? And then she thought, of course, here is Mita's secret. 
She clasped her mouth, and she rose and, splashing blindly through the puddles, stumbled back to the table, seeing not the shadowy scene around her, but the terrifying pictures in her mind. A child, she thought. She will steal a child and starve it to death. But there was no child here, caged like the animals. The automaton was built, but Nita was not ready to work her foul magic. How could Genevieve stop it? She studied the child shape, noticed wires leading from the Tesla coils to the robot, but little else. She ran her hands over the cool metal surface, finding little remarkable. A latch on its side opened to reveal rudimentary cogs for movement. Then she found a second, almost delicate knob at the automaton's hairline above the ear. A puzzle latch. But Genevieve twisted, pushed, and turned it until she found the right combination to release the catch. The curved door swung across the robot's forehead, revealing a large, tinted crystal. Genevieve frowned. She had used crystals and had only approximated sound. This one was different, though, and it definitely glowed blue. She leaned over the machine, her hand resting on the sturdy metal chest as she reached to pull the crystal free. The moment she touched it, a power slammed through her, sucking the breath from her lungs. She tried to draw in air, but felt herself suffocating as hot white light blinded her. The circuit, she thought. I closed it. Genevieve opened her eyes and knew something was terribly wrong. She was cold, couldn't move, and her breathing seemed odd. Mita's brilliant eyes were looking down on her. Ah, you're awake. Good. Don't try to talk just yet. It will take a few more minutes for everything to calibrate. She moved away. Genevieve tried to turn her head following her voice. Her head finally twisted a fraction, giving a view of one Tesla coil, its captive energy spinning like a dervish up the column, much faster than before. I was always afraid it would come to this. Your curiosity is insatiable. She came into view, the Tesla light limbing her back, serpentine tresses and silver. Shaking her head, she sighed. You know you brought this on yourself, but it's all for the best. You've provided me the chance to capture my first human soul. You will be the test. She adjusted something out of Genevieve's view. Human soul. Genevieve couldn't even frown. Her thoughts were disjointed. Automata normally run by gears, common steam engines, sometimes electricity, capturing pure animal voices so close to the original that one couldn't tell the difference, dead animals in cages, the human soul for a human voice. Genevieve jerked, heard the creak of metal as she tried to turn her head further. Now she succeeded in looking to her right. She saw a body lying on a gurney. Her vision was fuzzy, but the shape looked familiar. The clothes, too. And the soft brown hair. That's me! Mita eclipsed her view, her edges blurry. My, you are determined, aren't you, darling? 
She walked over to Genevieve's body and leaned over, smoothing hairs from her face. I'll miss our love-making. Mita kissed Genevieve's lips. Genevieve felt only revulsion, willing her flesh body to strangle Mita, but it did not move, except for a shallow rising of the chest. Why? A tinny voice croaked. Mita grinned. Good, it's working. Her face clouded and her eyes went dark. Why? Because I can. This is only the beginning. I will form an army that will obey none but me. I will have power. Her fist snapped shut, and again Genevieve saw that emotion that Mita had revealed behind the Kaiser's back. Now she knew it for what it was. The mad lust of a tyrant. Then, abruptly, Mita was laughing and tucking up some strands of her hair. It was pure luck, really, finding this location. The water was essentially for the soul capture. Still, I'm not sure how well I can keep humans, or for how long. Then there is the problem of what each of you might say. I may have to collect mutes. And then there's, oh, the impermanence. Mita waved a dismissive hand. That's neither here nor there. The life force is what will fuel my indestructible army. Now I must go. She smiled sadly at Genevieve and the brass golem's body. You were a lovely dalliance, even though you were no more exciting than a pet mouse. Humming, Mita left in a swirl of taffeta. Genevieve could not cry nor form a fist of wronged fury. All she could do was lie upon the table, encased in inferior metal, and think. The first thing she realized, Nita needed time until she could find a way to extend the captured life inside the metal bodies. An army whose life force dwindled and died would be no use. But the experiments would hurt many Genevieve had to survive, and she had to get beyond this immobility. Concentrate, she told herself. Learn to control this metal body. She would start with raising her arm. Hours passed. A day? In theory, this body should move on its cogs and gears, if she could just find a way to motivate it. But it was a rough prototype, the crude joints not even oiled. Again and again she sent the message to the arm. Move! Again and again nothing happened. Until it did. With a jerk, the metal arm moved. It creaked into view, the charging cables from the Tesla coils still attached to the wrists. Genevieve wished Mita had asked her to make this robot. She would have given it intricate joints and ball bearings for smooth, fluid motions. Instead, she was like a turtle on its back, only her right arm moving back and forth like a marching soldier. But now she managed to get the other limb in motion and began to work on curling the fingers. Footsteps reverberated on the floor above, and the trap door clunked open. Genevieve stilled herself. Hush, hush. Come down and I'll give you a lolly, Mita's voice cajoled. Her gown swished against the wooden crates. Now, just sit here. 
Genevieve creaked her head to the side as Mita sat a young boy of about six upon a chair and gave him a sweet. As the grubby child unwrapped the parchment, Mita put a cloth soaked in ether over his face. He slumped into her arms, and she carried him to an empty table, briefly glancing at metal Genevieve. The woman positioned the unconscious child, then moved to the table next to where metal Genevieve agonized. Another automaton lay there. Mita opened its headplate. The blue crystal glowed weakly against the pulsing light. She picked up two cables. Genevieve croaked out. Mita. Mita's back stiffened, and she put down the cables, turning toward the sound. Really? What is it now? I'm busy. Genevieve rocked on the bed. Mita laughed and moved closer. You're moving. What a brave little mouse. I'll keep you to entertain me. She threw back her head and laughed. The laughter stopped when Genevieve's metal fingers seized her wrist. Genevieve could not know how tight her grasp was, so she used all her clumsy strength. Mita gasped and paled, then started pulling at the fingers. Mita, you must stop. Mita pulled back, but Genevieve held on and brought her other arm up, and now she gripped both of Mita's wrists. Let me go! No. Genevieve's voice was a metallic croak. You let me go. Mita thrashed left and right, but Genevieve did not loosen her grip. The cylindrical body rocked on the table as Mita thrust and pulled back and forth. Now metal Genevieve slid over the edge of the table, pulling Mita down to the floor, falling on her, pinning her. The enraged woman kicked and strained against the metal grip. Mita's flailing foot connected with the table that held the second robot, the table on which the live cables rested. The conduit slipped off, falling to the floor, arcs of light snapping between their naked ends. Then they hit the water. A crack of light and sound, a shriek, and Mita's body arched, her arms jerking like a string puppet's. The flash blinded Genevieve. She was in darkness, and it felt as if a cold wind rushed through her. Then she was doubled up, coughing and gagging, vomiting as her body convulsed. Shakily, she looked around. A burned, metallic smell filled her senses. Her vision wavered. Her pounding heart was all the sound in the world. The automaton lay on Mita, blackened flash marks across the metal and flesh alike. Genevieve pulled herself up, wiping her mouth on her sleeve. Spring arrived, heavy and leaden. Genevieve made one last round of the jeweled forest. Kaiser Wilhelm had ordered it rid of all automata, even the rabbit. Now a few real nightingales and larks flitted through the branches, and even a cat or two prowled the artificial woods, while workers polished the gems and metal to maintain their splendor. She was leaving Germany. Great steamworks were being constructed in England. She would pursue her work there. As she turned to leave the garden, a telltale glint of gold slithered by. Reaching out, she seized the snake, then smashed it against the ground. Coils and springs bounced loose. Green gems scattered. 
Genevieve ground her heel against the metal and said goodbye to the false Eden. Though one of its serpents had been all too real. And there you go. Colleen, thank you so much indeed. Thank you indeed. Oh, yes, a taste of Eden. Very nice. Thank you. And Tatiana, that was lovely. Absolutely lovely. Thank you indeed. Yes, well, moving on, it is our very own Amy H. Sturgis. Ames! Hello, my friends. It's time for another look back into genre history. And today, I'd like to talk about a few books that I have recently read and how they relate to each other. One from the 16th century and two from very recent years, 2017 and, in fact, 2020. The interplay between these works sort of fascinates me. And while none of these books is science fiction per se, I think you will see how very SF-adjacent it is. Certainly, these works fit into the larger umbrella, or fit under the larger umbrella of imaginative literature. And certainly, you can connect folklore and fantasy and speculative fiction to all of this. So the first thing I want to talk about is one of the four classic great works of Chinese literature, and that is The Journey to the West. And although I have just uh, read this work, I know there are a lot of people who will know a lot more about it than I do. I have wanted to read it for a good long time. And it's been available in various formats, including truncated versions, retellings, and such for English language readers. Um, maybe one of the best known of those is Monkey by Arthur Whaley. But I found the really the best versions that you can get, the revised editions in four volumes of The Journey to the West, translated and edited by Anthony C.U., and I highly recommend them. The annotations, the introductions, the extra materials were vital in my understanding of what this text was doing. And uh, these are all from the University of Chicago Press. The Journey to the West was first published around 1592 and attributed to Wu Chenyan, although that authorship is contested and a bit unclear. Certain ingredients of the story predate the published work and had circulated before in folk tales and oral traditions and other forms. The story it tells, and particularly the anti-hero at the center of the story, Sun Wukong, the Monkey King, can be found in multiple retellings, adaptations, spin-offs, in television, in film, in other literature, in comics, you name it. This has been a literary gift that keeps on giving. Now, the basis of this highly imaginative story is actually a kind of fact. That is, there was during the Tang Dynasty, a Buddhist monk who spent many years, it was a 17-year journey, uh, going to Central Asia and India to obtain sacred Buddhist texts to bring back to China. And he wrote great Tang records of the Western regions, his account of this travel. 
And about nine centuries later, he becomes the model for the supposed main character of the Journey to the West, the monk who is chosen by Buddha and gifted with three companions who need to work out their own um, redemption, in a way, by protecting him on this sacred quest. But he is the hero of the story, really, in premise only, because the monk doesn't really do a whole lot except uh, worry and cry and swoon occasionally, and his babe-in-the-woods quality of being really not up to the task of this quest allows the anti-hero that we can't help but root for, the Monkey King, Sun Wukong, to come to the fore. And he's really the driving force that makes the quest happen. He's good at getting everyone into trouble in adventure after adventure, but he's even better at getting everyone out of trouble. He is both strong and very, very clever and frequently hilarious. So the Monkey King is, in fact the product of the coupling of heaven and earth. He hatches from a stone egg on Flower Fruit Mountain, and he becomes a king of the monkeys, but he's so powerful that he attracts the attention of heaven and eventually is trained and goes to heaven uh, as an enlightened creature only to wreak havoc there when he doesn't think he's getting the respect that uh, should be due him. And ultimately, his own hubris brings him low, and he's given the opportunity to redeem himself, his immortal life, by being the guardian of this monk. The majority of the story takes place during this trip uh, to the West, and this tale is many things. It is a spiritual work that combines elements of Taoism and Confucianism and particularly Buddhism. It is a work of political satire. It is a distillation of many different folk tales. It's a great fantastical adventure story. And I have to say, 2,000 pages later, it's a page-turner because these characters, as they are going single-mindedly toward their one point, they encounter all kinds of different towns with different issues. You have gods and monsters and demons and creatures who are not what they appear to be, and they solve problems by fighting demons or by pointing out that, you know, the leader of this area is actually someone else in disguise and your real leader must be somewhere else, and saving children that are to be sacrificed or avoiding the temptations of sex or wealth, all sorts of things. And at the heart of the action is Sun Wukong, the Monkey King, and his Ruiji Gubong, the unstoppable size-shifting staff that he can shrink down to the size of a needle and hide it in his ear, or he can take it out and ask it to grow, and it becomes this amazing weapon. And the monkey was able to take it and use it after it had begun as the pillar supporting the undersea palace of the Dragon King of the East Sea. And together, 
the Monkey King and his staff are pretty much undefeatable. There is a real systematic, logical approach to the way that magic is described, and otherworldly supernatural beings are described, and the hierarchies that are there, and the way that the mysteries unfold and the adventures happen, that is very satisfying to someone who is interested in well-built fantasy and science fiction, even though some of this actually plays as spiritual allegory and historical commentary, as well as imaginative fiction. That actually just adds to the way the stories work. In a sense, this story is built on evolved belief and mythology, as opposed to suddenly created fiction, as it were. I can certainly see why The Journey to the West is considered to be a great classic of Chinese literature, and in fact a great classic epic of world literature up there with, for example, the Odyssey or with the Mort d'Arthur. I promised you some contemporary work, and here's how I want to pivot, because uh, I actually discovered these works before I made the commitment to reading all of The Journey of the West. It just made me enjoy them more. And the first work I want to talk about is the first book about Jeannie Lowe by F.C. Yee. It is called The Epic Crush of Jeannie Lowe, and it is young adult fantasy, a coming-of-age story, just just so witty and clever and insightful about uh, a young woman in high school who is sort of coming into her own, coming to terms with and finding her place in relationship to her own Chinese heritage and the expectations put on her by her family and her school culture as she lives in California and is preparing for college applications. And the book starts out with Jeannie heading to school and seeing what appears to be a gang of bad guys beating up uh, a young man and tries her best to stop this attack. Later, she ends up at school, and lo and behold, there is that young victim, and he looks perfectly fine. He's new at school. He introduces himself and then proceeds to make it clear in front of everyone that he's come there essentially for Jeannie, which uh, Jeannie isn't having any part of. But as we discover, as the plot unfolds, as we learn that her town, her entire area, is under a kind of supernatural attack, it becomes clear that the young man at her school is in fact the immortal Sun Wukong, the Monkey King, and that she is the enlightened reincarnation of his staff, the Ruijing Gubang. This staff, which had been a thing, became so enlightened, followed the way, that she essentially became a human being, the highest possible incarnation in that sense. And now she is a human being. She's a real person. Yet she has all of the abilities, and that sort of simpatico relationship, a connection to the Monkey King, and together they can be this unstoppable force for good if they choose to do so. And 
One of the cleverest and most charming things about this book is that although her parents know the story of the journey to the West, a lot of her schoolmates do, Jeannie's really never paid attention to this. And so she is doing research on herself and on the uh, allies, such as um, uh, the goddess of compassion and mercy, Guan Yin, with whom she has had a very long relationship, mentorship even, if you would. So she is doing the research about the journey to the West as her adventures in present-day California unfold. And we also get to see the stories from a teenage present-day perspective. And there's a lot to love about these stories. And there's some things that just strike a modern audience. This is really weird and, uh, and strange and even problematic. And she picks those out as well. And as she teams up with the Monkey King and helps fight for good, well, her power grows and her self-determination grows as well. The Epic Crush of Jeannie Lowe by F.C. Yee uh, came out in 2017, and its sequel just came out in January 2020, The Iron Will of Jeannie Lowe, and it is just as good as the first, and uh, takes the literary and mythical and folkloric and religious and cultural context of these stories really to the next level. It's just a delightful sort of meta-commentary on the journey to the West. So I've been very pleased then going back, reading the journey to the West, and then coming to these stories, just how insightful and meaningful, and in a lot of ways touching, um, they are, and how well the imaginative, fantastical aspects of the journey to the West translate to present-day young adult fantasy fiction. So there are my recommendations. Again, I'm not an expert in this literature. I am just an appreciative pilgrim, if you will, in these lands. But I would highly recommend The Epic Crush of Jeannie Lowe and The Iron Will of Jeannie Lowe, both by F.C. Yee, and the four-volume, and I promise you, it's a page-turner, the Journey to the West, translated and edited by Anthony C. Yu, the revised editions in four volumes from the University of Chicago Press. And they're something a little different and uh, a lot fascinating. At least I find it so. I hope that you've enjoyed our time together, and I look forward to joining you again soon with something completely different when we take another look back at Genre History. Thank you. Big thank you, Amy, and a big hug. My God, last yes, you know what I mean. Just a huge, oh, just squeeze you there, squeeze you, squeeze you, squeeze you till you're you hurting. I will, yes. Well, that is Starship Sova. I hope you enjoyed it. I, that, you know what I mean. Please come back next week. That would be fantastic. Big thank you to Amy and to Tatiana Gray and Colleen Anderson and Gary. Thank you so much for putting it all together. And Lisa, for pushing it out there in everywhere possible. Until next week, I'd just like to say a good night from me. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction.
You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.